Uh, Dr. Mark uh, has been a great friend of ours for quite a while now and has just been such an encouragement because he's always supported the Colson Fellows, supported our church, uh, been willing to come down uh, and speak and be with us as he is again today. Uh, so he's an incredible man of God. He's a, he's a, he's a writer, uh, a preacher, uh, he's an Anglican minister. Uh, he has two doctorates, one in linguistics and one in theology uh, with a specialisation in Islam. So he's world-renowned expert, Christian expert uh, on Islam, which is absolutely fascinating. And he really sits at the uh, threshold or cutting edge uh, of what it means to be a Christian uh, in Western culture. And yesterday, the two sessions we had with him were absolutely phenomenal just for discipling us in how to be a Christian uh, in this current world. So thank you, Mark, for sharing with us this morning. Bless thank you. you. Thank you so much, Caleb. Well, what a joy it's been, and it is this weekend, to be with you and to see the fruit of the grace that God has placed in this church and in people's lives. You, you, I think you're really blessed in the Lord here in this place, and I, I wish we could live here with you and be part of your community, but we're in New South Wales in a different place. But it's an absolute joy to pray with you, and uh, I've been really deeply moved staying with Caleb and Zoe and their beautiful kids and to see the grace of God that's in them and a heart for pastoring the church and a perseverance and a vision in ministry that, uh, that you're bearing the fruit of and enjoying that. So praise God for that. In my message today with you, I'd like to explore with you a passage in Matthew chapter 14. This is a really wonderful passage and it comes at a really key point in Matthew's gospel. Actually, it's a very low point in Matthew's Gospel, followed by two high points. The low point is that John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod. And Jesus hears the news, and look, he must have been grieving about his cousin John, who he had declared was the greatest of all the prophets that had come before him. It must have touched Jesus very deeply to hear from John's disciples who'd taken his headless body and buried it, and to hear how John the Baptist had died at the request of a young girl who was dancing before the king. Matthew reports that Jesus, when he heard that news, withdrew from the crowds who all wanted a piece of him, and we know why, and he withdrew to a lonely place because it must have been, you know, a huge thing for him to hear that news. No doubt he needed to spend time with his father and he needed to grieve too, to think about what had happened, to reflect about his meetings with John and what he'd seen in John and to think about the future as well. He needed time to himself. But what happened? Let's listen to what John 14 then goes on to say. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and, and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, 
They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have here, they said, five loaves of bread and two fish. Bring them here to me, he said. And Jesus directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave it to the, to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And with, when the men in that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him, and they begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Well, this amazing passage from Matthew's Gospel is about faith. What does it mean to believe? And I think it's really important that it comes off an episode of great loss and no doubt disappointment, even horror, to many. The brutal killing of John the Baptist, the one who was sent to prepare a way for Jesus. Let's fill in some of the context in the story to listen to what's going on. These stories in the Gospels would have been told and retold by the disciples of Christ in the years after he left them. They're very honed and they're full of meaning and you sort of have to sit with them and reflect what's going on in those stories. So Jesus is really very keen to get away. I mean, you can just imagine 
how distressed he was to hear that news. It was a personal issue because this was his relative. It was a kingdom issue because John was the great forerunner, the one who was sent to turn the hearts of the fathers and the children to each other. But the people are hungry for Jesus and they see the disciples in the boat taking Jesus along the, along the, along the lake and they run around the side of the lake to try and keep up. It must have been extraordinary. 5,000 men plus women and children. So how many people were there? Maybe 10,000 people. When Jesus lands in this place that he'd set aside in his heart and mind to pray and just be with his Father, he finds this multitude just hungry for his healing presence. And so he spends the rest of that day ministering to them. Just imagine you know, what that was like when he was carrying that grief to be ministering to people in the midst of that, at that time. But he sets his need aside. He has compassion on them. He heals the sick. That's what they've come for. That's what they're desperate to see. But the logistics are not up to it. There's no food there. Just think about it. 5,000 people, men, 5,000 men, plus the women and children, in a deserted place, and there were no portaloos. That's very messy experience. <laughs> the mind boggles. And then everyone's hungry. Now, the disciples, who are trying their best to manage a bad situation, uh, say to Jesus, Jesus, we've got to do something about this. You have to send these people back so they can get some food and maybe go to the toilet as well, but that's not mentioned there in the story. And, and then Jesus... He says to them, you give them something to eat. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing that he speaks to them in that way. He knew what he was doing. He knew they couldn't, they couldn't answer that. It was one of those absolutely impossible things that Jesus sometimes asks us to do. Jesus, that's very funny that you would ask me to do that. They were really being thrown in the deep end at that moment. And they'd invested everything in following Jesus. They'd left their nets. They'd left everything. They'd seen amazing things. And he's telling them to feed this multitude. What would, what would you do at that point? Well, they continue the conversation. <laughs> and they say, we, you know, what we've got is a few loaves and uh, a few small fish. And actually, John's gospel tells us that this was a boy's packed lunch or packed dinner. There was one kid there whose mum had the good sense to give him something to take when he was following Jesus around the lake. So good on him. And this little, this tiny amount of food, Jesus takes that and he consecrates it in prayer. He, he gives thanks to God. He acknowledges the Lord. And he tells everyone to sit down. And then he hands that little meal over to the disciples, and he tells them to give it away, to share it out to others. What would you have been thinking if you had, you know, there's 12 disciples and two fish, so you get about a sixth of a fish and a half of a loaf, and you're told to hand it out to the multitude. What would you have done? Anyway, a miracle happens. But where does the miracle happen? When does the miracle happen? It's a really important point in this story. Where does the miracle take place? Well, it takes place in the hands of the disciples. 
It takes place as they give away what little they have. And that's really extraordinary. There's a lot in that, isn't there? They had so little. They had just scraps in their hands, but every time they handed it out, they had more. The food multiplies in the disciples' hands as they give it away. You know, Jesus was involving his followers in his ministry all the time. He sends out 12, he sends out 72, they debrief with him, and he was, they were participating in this powerful act of God in an amazing way. I'm sure years later they must have remembered what that bread felt like in their hands and what that fish felt like and the experience of handing it out and seeing there was as much or more left after they gave it away. The food multiplies in the disciples' hands. And then at the end it says, the 5,000 men plus the women and children are all fed and the scraps are cleaned up and there's basketful and basketful of scraps left over. So it wasn't one of those picnics when there's barely enough to feed people. They had so much that there was stuff left on the ground. Anyway, it's getting late as we'd already heard, it must have taken an hour or two for that to happen. And then Jesus sends everyone away. He dismisses them. And he sends the disciples off as well. And he gets back to the really purpose why he'd gone there, which was to grieve, to pray, to spend time with his father. It says immediately, like as soon as the, fi- the, the food was done, he immediately sends his disciples off. And you have to get the picture. It leaves Jesus completely alone there on the, on the, you know, by, the, by the lake. There's nothing nearby. He's just on his own. The disciples must have been a bit unwilling just to nick off and leave Jesus by himself. It must have worried them. But it says in Matthew that he made them leave him there. He said, you have to go. And you know, if you've just been part of a miracle like that, and you've seen what Jesus has done, and he tells you to go, well, I think you go. You do what he says. And it must have been really close to dark when everyone was going away. Now, normally, it would have taken about three to four hours to row across the Sea of Galilee. But they were rowing into the wind, and the wind came up, and we read that it was the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came to them, which is between 3 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they'd been rowing perhaps eight or nine hours. And when you're rowing and, there's a, and you're in a, like a small boat and there's a huge wind blowing, you have to row into the wind. You can't be sideways. So whichever direction they wanted to go, they were having to go into the wind. And it was just taking hour after hour after hour. Jesus had really sent them into a tough place when he put them in that boat and sent them off. So Jesus has spent hours praying, maybe eight hours praying there by himself. And then he gets up and he begins to walk across the lake towards the disciples. And they are no doubt absolutely exhausted, done in, and just waiting for daylight at that point. Then they see Jesus and fear grips them. They're terrified. But Peter, who's always the eager one, he's always willing to kind of jump in the middle of whatever's happening. He cries out, Lord, if it's you, Tell me to come to you on the water. There might, it might not be him like, what is this apparition coming towards us? He said, if it's you, tell me to come. Speak the word, Jesus. Now, Peter really had some guts, I think. He had a lot of courage or, or it was foolhardy, whatever it was, a bit of both. Um, a glorious kind of foolhardy courage. And, and it's like he's saying to Jesus, I believe, tell me it's true. 
I can do that if you tell me. If you speak the word, I, I, I think I can do it. Anyway, Jesus just says, come. So Peter comes out, he's walking on the water. Now, Peter was a fisherman. He, he knew boats. He understood about drowning. He understood about the need to stay in the boat. <laughs> this was his area. Um, but Jesus was calling him to come, so he comes. It's really an amazing moment. He must have thought about that a lot over the years. I think we've, many of us have had that moments where we've seen something extraordinary that God has done and we think about it later. It shapes us, it, 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 it really influences us. The NIV translation which I read to you says, Peter saw the wind. It's a really strange thing because you, you don't normally see wind. It's invisible, isn't it? Actually, what the Greek says is he saw the violent wind and, and then he was afraid. So I think it means he saw the violence of the wind, the thrashing waves, the windswept spray in his face. He can hear the noise in his ears. And as he's distracted by that, as he kind of attends to that, he begins to sink. And so he cries out, Lord, save me. It's really interesting what happens there. He, he's distracted and he's doubting, but at the same time, he's believing. He's believing Jesus could save him. So he's kind of like he's caught somewhere between faith and doubt. There's doubt there or distraction from Jesus, but there's also still faith. Jesus, you can save me. He's believing, but not quite believing. It's, it's a really interesting place to be in, and I think that we're often in that place. We're often in that place. And I actually find it really amazed how Jesus responds to what happens. He, he reaches out and pulls Peter up and they get in the boat. But then he says to Peter, why did you doubt? Which is, I think, a bit harsh. Like, he's, he's walked on water. Um, and when he was, he see that wasn't working, he, he called out to be saved he said, Lord, save me. I mean, isn't that faith? He believed enough. His faith had put him there. None of the others got out of the boat, but Peter's the one who said they didn't have enough faith. Now, the Greek word for doubt here is distadzo, and what it means literally is two standing. Someone who's standing in two different ways at once. It's not the usual word for doubting. It's used one other time in the New Testament. In Matthew 28, interestingly, another pl place where it says people worship Jesus, and it says that some doubted, some were two standing at that time as well. What does it mean, this two standing word? Well, the way we stand, our posture, that is the way we're ready for what's coming, um, is is, is really important, and I, I had a few images there of Novak Djokovic and Ash Barty standing uh, when they're ready to receive serve. It's really striking. Like, this guy knows how to stand. <laughs> He's ready for that one thing, and Ash Barty's the same. She's totally, 100% focused on that ball that's about to come over the net to return serve. How successful would they be if they were sort of just leaning back like this or looking the other way or, or thinking, oh, when the ball comes, I'll work out how to stand. No, they were standing before the ball comes. They were ready to respond. And I think that's what this word is about. It's like, what are you ready for? 
What are you ready to respond to in your life? How are you standing with respect to God's plan for your life? In this wonderful, amazing event on the Sea of Galilee, Peter believes. I think that's true. He does have faith. But at the same time, he doesn't believe. (laughs) He goes out of the boat when Jesus says, come, but at some point, he begins to attend to the crowd, if you like, if it was Ashbati. It'll be like suddenly she says, oh, that's something interesting up in the stand. That would be too standing. But he gets distracted, but it's the wind and the waves and the storm that's distracting him. He starts paying attention to what the wind is doing, and he's caught between Jesus and the wind and the waves. But fortunately for him, Jesus is there to pull him back out. They they climb into the boat, the wind calms down, and everyone in the boat is stunned. What is going on here? What do we make of it? It says they worshipped him. Have you noticed in this whole passage how Jesus keeps sending the disciples into tough situations? He keeps throwing them in the deep end. He does it at least three times. He does it in the evening by the lake when he gives them a few scraps of food and tells them to feed more than 5,000 people sitting down, ready to receive dinner. The miracle of the loaves and the fishes, which happened in their hands. You know, I completely believe that if the disciples hadn't gone ahead and tried to distribute that food as they did, the miracle would not have happened. There wouldn't have been enough. It happened as they gave it away, as they stepped out. It's not that Jesus turned the food into a great pile so they could see there was enough. He just gave them a little bit and said, give that out. And they did it. And amazingly, there was more than enough. The second time is when Jesus sends the disciples out into the deep water of the lake. He tells them to go off without him. And they have no idea what a tough night they have ahead of them. And the third time, I think, is the hardest and the most amazing, when Jesus calls to Peter and says, come across those waves. When was the last time someone asked you to walk on water? In a way, Jesus was always asking us to walk on water, to step out beyond our comfort zone. He throws us all in the deep end at different times. He tells us to row when the wind and waves are against us. He gives us what just seems like a little bit of something and tells us to give it away, to put it to work. He calls us to come to him when we know that at least our mind and our soul tells us that by any measure of common sense and all that we've we've known, he's asking us to do something which is beyond us. So what might it mean for us to be too standing, to be double-minded, to be doubting, to be ready for Jesus' call, but at the same time, not ready? Standing ready to respond to Jesus, but at the same time, distracted by the wind and the waves, by other thoughts, other priorities, what our culture and the world has served up to us, what our experiences of life have told us are true. Imagine you come to a set of traffic lights and there's, they're showing red and green at the same time. What are you going to do? Are you going to stop or are you going to go? And sometimes it's like that when Jesus calls us. There's Jesus green, but there's all this red as well. And how do we reconcile that? How are we going to make sense of that? Let's just take a moment to look at the Matthew 28 passage where it says, 
some doubted as well. And this time, it's the same word, just as so. Why did they doubt? Why did they doubt? It says in Matthew 28, just before the, the Great Commission, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So he said, just go to that mountain in Galilee. And when they saw him there, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I wonder what they were doubting, what was happening. What were they of two minds about at that point? It says they worshipped him, and what that means, that word means, is that they were just flat down like this. That's what that means. That's what they were doing in the boat, too, after they saw Jesus bring Peter back in the boat. So they were flat out on their face, and it says that some were two standing. They were standing in two different ways. They were, they were doubting. What were they wondering about? Have a think about it. I think it must have been that they were still wondering who Jesus was and how the program would work out. We see in the Acts of the Apostles, they said, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They were still wondering about that. They'd been hoping that he was the Messiah who'd come to free them from the Romans and rise up and establish the kingdom of Israel. They'd seen the miracles, but they'd also seen him brutally crucified. And now he's alive again. It was all there. It must have been just flashing through their minds at that moment on the mountain. But what did it all mean? What are they doing on the top of a mountain in Galilee? How does this fit into their understanding of everything? What is happening when you read the Acts of the Apostles, you see that actually it's after Pentecost that they begin to put it all together. Something shifts and they proclaim Christ as Lord. But at this point, some of them are still, you know, struggling. They're still seeing the green and the red light at the same time and not able to reconcile it all. Now, with God, we can find ourselves in places like that. Ready, but not ready. Having faith, but yet feeling pulled back as well, pulled between two realities. One is the reality of the world in which we live and the reality of our own lives and experiences, and the other is the mind-blowing reality of Jesus Christ. And we have an eye on Jesus, but there's another eye which is taking in the wind and thinking about the waves and drawing that to our attention. When Jesus calls and he says, walk on water, feed thousands of people with food scraps. The biggest challenge for us is often going on inside, in our hearts and minds. But let me ask you this question. Are your mind and your heart ready for the kingdom? Are they kingdom ready? Are you aligned with Jesus' purposes? Or do you find yourselves double-minded, being pulled in other directions? Which way are you going to turn? Paul writes about this in his letter to the Romans. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. What stance have we adopted? What are we ready for? Are we ready to respond to the things in this world? Or are, are we like Ashbati, totally ready for Jesus' ball that's coming over? You know, for his call for what he's calling us to. I really believe some of the greatest challenges we face are in our own minds, in our own souls. When we say the soul, uh, we mean our memories, our emotions, uh, the things that have shaped us, 
our psyche, the greatest challenges are often there. The things we believe, that we hold on to, that are sometimes contrary to Jesus' thoughts, and the fog, as we heard about, that interferes with our ability to see the truth. This is our worldview, the way we think about the world and who we are in it. And the, the worldview we have is often deeply shaped by our culture, and that can make us double-minded when we're called by Jesus. Actually, we're called to be, have a renewed worldview, a worldview that's God's worldview, so that when we hear Jesus calling, we, we are not caught out, double-minded, trying to process other voices at the same time. When people speak about worldview, uh, we can think about life's big questions, like what does it mean to be human, or what do we think about freedom or justice, equality, human rights, sexuality, identity. These are important issues, and we were thinking about them yesterday, asking, who are we? What does it mean to be human? How do we think of ourselves in time and in history? But I think often the biggest challenges to us, the, 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 the kind of real challenge of double-mindedness is not so much our philosophy or our big-picture politics. It's what I would call our emotional worldview, what has shaped our souls, how we see ourselves, how we feel about ourselves and ourselves in relation to others. And that's an area where we really need the gospel to go deep and to transform us, to reshape us. I was just speaking with Zoe yesterday uh, and she spoke about the idea of reparenting, that sometimes when someone's really damaged, they need to be reparented, <laughs> uh, you know, in a way to be reformed. And that's what our Father God lo loves to do for us, to reform our hearts, to reparent us, and to enter into the love of God can change us. And one of the symptoms of what we need to address in our double-mindedness is our self-talk, the things we hear ourselves saying or thinking in challenging circumstances. How do you think about who you are before God? I mean, how do you really think? Is your self-talk in line with God's Word and the truth that is in Jesus Christ? Are you speaking words of life into your own life? I think this really goes deep, and it's a question we all should ask. In order to be ready, standing ready for one thing, which is Jesus' call, we need to be asking, is our way of talk, is our way of thinking about ourselves and others too, is that in line with how God sees us? Is that in line with the cross and what Jesus has done for us and the identity that he's given us? Now, dear Peter was thinking, the wind, <laughs> the waves, Jesus, help me. But Jesus was thinking something else. Jesus was thinking, Peter, you can walk on water, just believe the disciples were thinking, we can't feed this crowd, we have next to nothing. Jesus was thinking, you've got this, you can, you can do this, you can feed them. And they could actually, they really, really could in step with Jesus because that's what he was asking them to do. You know, there can be many ways that our souls, our thinking, our hearts, our feelings are not aligned with the kingdom of God. One way is by our sin and so we confess our sin. But today I want to invite you to think about the way our thoughts are sometimes misaligned with the kingdom of God, our thoughts about our futures and where our security lies, about our families, about our work, about our identity in the eyes of others. 
really, really? Is our thinking distracted by the ways of our culture, by our experiences, distracted from the reality of Jesus' kingdom? I really admire these Colson Fellows who've devoted a year to um, developing uh, and clarifying a biblical worldview, how to think about power, how to think about human identity, how to think about the future of nations, how to trace the threads of philosophy of humankind down through history and to evaluate that against the word of truth in the Bible, really seeking out what is true, what a beautiful hunger to have and to act upon. But the challenge of double-mindedness is not just about our intellect, it's not just about how we answer deep philosophical questions, it's also about how we see ourselves emotionally, our emotional worldview. When you hear Jesus' voice calling to you, you can be held back and distracted by just so many things. Things like shame, self-rejection, not feeling good enough, what will others think, a desire to control, fear, hopelessness. What words come into your mind when a spiritual challenge comes before you? Over the years, as a pastor, I've encountered a lot of self-talk that is not from God and can hold people back. I, you could call them lies or ungodly beliefs. I've heard so many scripts from human hearts. Words like, I don't belong. No one cares what I feel. No one could really like me. If people could really see me for who I am, they would reject me. Whatever I do, it's never going to be good enough. God shortchanged me. I got the short straw in life. I'll just always be like this. People never change. I've wasted my life. Whatever I do, I'll end up with egg on my face. I'm all alone. I can't trust anyone. I have to look after myself. I never want to let my heart get broken again. God favors other people more than me. I can never do enough to please God. Everything is just too hard. You know, we can be so defined by what we feel and what we think and the, this self-talk that we speak about ourselves in our heart of hearts. But what is the truth that Jesus wants to speak to us and to you in your heart? Just to set aside that self-talk, what has he said to you? What is he saying to you about your life? Can you hear it? Have you a strategy for incorporating his truth into your life? Now, these events in Matthew 14, they take place after Jesus has received this terrible, shocking news, the beheading of his friend and cousin, John the Baptist, the great forerunner, the greatest prophet there was before Christ. He's been murdered in the most pointless way at the behest of a dancing girl. Now, in our world today, we've been through some trying times. We've been hearing lots of bad news. Our confidence has been stretched. And I want to say to you all, well done for being here. I know it was hard during the lockdowns and all that was lost, but you're here to be in the presence of God and to be fed by Christ. And I praise God for that. But our hearts have been tested and we've been rattled and challenged. And I think more testing lies ahead. 
the harder times I fear, uh, not in an ungodly way, but I sense that there's deeper challenges ahead. And the global economic system is under enormous pressure. President Putin now speaks of nuclear war. His officials speak of World War III. China is rising with ill intent. Inflation is back. Global supply chains are disrupted. Nations now are facing starvation. People are fearing climate crises. We are all being thrown into deep water, deeper than we know, I think. And a challenge for us in these times now and times ahead will be to think God's way about God's world, to align our thoughts with the wisdom of Jesus Christ, to be ready for his kingdom and for the incredible opportunities that he will bring your way in these difficult times ahead. This is no time to be double-minded. It's a time to step up, to reorient our thoughts and our hearts for what lies ahead. John the Baptist called this repentance, and it is about confessing sin, about getting your hearts ready for the kingdom, but it's about more than that. It's about embracing a whole change of heart and mind. It's about letting the truth that is Jesus Christ do soul surgery within you. It's about what we're standing for, what we're standing ready for with all our attention, all our soul's power positioned for what is to come, for what Jesus is bringing. It's about devoting ourselves to be totally present for God, standing ready for this one thing, which is to hear Jesus' call for us to trust him, to follow him, and to live that out. These stories, feeding the multitude, Peter walking on water, they were recorded for you. They are your stories. In a way, they're meant to be the stories of your lives, of our lives together. When Jesus calls you to serve, to step out, to listen to his voice, to feed the multitudes, to walk on water, I just say this, be ready. Be ready, heart, body, and soul. Be ready so you won't be distracted by other things, by your own internal voices or the voices of the world. Be ready for that moment. Be prepared. Give Jesus your full attention. Always remember when Jesus calls, he provides. Absolutely. He is enough to fulfill his call. Be prepared like Ash Barty. Make a commitment that your mind is ready to be renewed, transformed by Jesus' thoughts. Don't let the noise of this world or your inner self-talk distract you from hearing God's voice. If you find that a hard challenge to do that, to move to what you know God is saying from what your interior voice is saying, find someone to help you who can step you through that. Get some assistance because God loves to work at that place in someone's life. Let's just take a moment, just a moment of quiet to reflect on what's your self-talk been and what is Jesus saying to you? What, he, what has he been saying to you? What would he say to you now in the midst of any troubles that you're facing? Let's just take a moment to ask Jesus to speak his truth into our hearts. And after we've done that, I'd just love to pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come to us now 
that you'd speak truth, your truth into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We just lift up to you any negative self-talk, any limitations we've placed on ourselves. We hand them to you, Lord, and ask that you'd speak the truth to us about who we are and who you ask us to be. Lord God, you are holy, righteous altogether. Every word that comes from your mouth is truth. Lord, I pray that the truth of your word, the, the personal truth for us, would go deep into hearts, that would germinate and grow into a beautiful tree of life in our souls, that your truth would just be such a fruitful blessing in our hearts and souls. I stand against the lies that have crippled us and helped us, helped us back. And when we tear them down in the name of Jesus, we break their power. I declare freedom to the captives in the name of Jesus. Freedom to know the truth, to absorb it and let it go deep within hearts, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would anoint this church with the gift of being ready for the kingdom standing ready for the kingdom of God. Lord, I ask that you would release power, authority, and grace over this community for all that you have ahead, in the challenging times ahead, that your word will go forth with power and grace, that you would raise up this people in Jesus' name, that they would be ready to take what you have put in their hands and to hand it out to many, many people, to bring life to many, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.